Good morning. Before we jump into the text that we're going to be working through this morning, I wanted to send out just a quick reminder that tonight at seven o'clock, we're going to be gathering in the parking lot for our communion service that was scheduled last week, but due to heat conditions, we decided to postpone it until this week. And this week, we still continue to live in the debris of the fires. Um, so we are planning on meeting on Sunday, but if for some reason uh, things turn for the worst or the sky conditions don't allow us to meet or there's too much smoke, we'll send out an email to let you know um, some of these things are out of our control. But the plan going forward is that we are going to meet on Sunday and we're going to have communion together. And you can still go online and register for that. And that is um, necessary for you to do so, so that we can anticipate how many people are going to be there and follow uh, safety precautions and prepare communion uh, for each one of you as we come together to partake of the good gift of God's grace and also to hear from one another, just what God's up to. So keep that in mind. Um, we are planning on meeting on Sunday night at seven and we look forward to being with you. This morning, we're gonna look at uh, something out of, a story out of Genesis chapter four. And it comes from chapter four, verses one through 16. And this is a story uh, about two brothers, Cain and Abel. And when you look at a story like this, one of the questions that is asked is, what is the story about? What is it that's going on in the story? What's the intent of the story? Now we're four chapters into humanity's story and hatred is now part of the story, which then leads to violence and then murder. And we're just four chapters in. Now, I wanna begin by um, just drawing into what I think the story is, is pointing us to. And I think the story is moving us from vengeance into God's idea of restorative justice. So the move from vengeance into restorative justice. And I want to begin by drawing our attention to the second part of verse 7. Notice what it says. If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now there's a lot going on in there. And I love how it ends. You must rule over it because if you don't rule over it, it will rule over you. Now, what's the it? What is it that the author of Genesis is pointing us to? Now, I think this is a story about sin. And I would say specifically, this is what happens when things like envy, jealousy, rage, hatred, indifference, which in my opinion is just another form of hatred, is like maybe a mild form of hatred. And when those things go left unchecked, what they can become in our lives. So a few observations. Number one, envy, jealousy, anger, and hatred like to hide. That's the nature of these particular sins. These seemingly ordinary feelings that all of us experience can grow and become something destructive in our lives and in our relationships. Now, the image that the author gives us here is that sin is crouching. And I would call this the posture of the pounce. Why would the author of Genesis choose this imagery? Have you ever watched a cat over a period of time? And especially when a cat is getting ready to go after prey, they take on a particular posture, they crouch down. 
And the reason why cats crouch is probably for several different reasons, to appear smaller than they actually are, to hide, therefore becoming less of a threat. And if you happen to notice me, well, you know what? I'm just over here in the corner or I'm gonna hang out here in the low weeds. Don't mind me, you carry on with business as usual. Now, I think the reason why the authors are using this imagery is to help us as to reader, as the readers, to understand that sin, by its very nature, always appears, likes to appear smaller than it actually is. To think about how easy it is for us to rationalize things like jealousy. Well, it's just something that all of us experience. What's the big deal? Or that we are constantly underestimating the power of envy because envy is hard to nail down. It's hard to know what it is exactly. And so we come up with definitions, but I think we have a tendency to either rationalize or underestimate these sins. You take Cain's feelings, for example. It says in the text that over the course of time, which is key, Cain brought some of the first fruits of the soil as an offering. Abel brought fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. Now, when I look at that, and it, and it tells us that God accepted, he found favor upon Abel and his offering and not on Cain and his offering. Why is Abel's sacrifice and offering more acceptable? Why is God extending favor over Cain's offering? Now, to step back a little bit, this is a dedication offering in which you are expected to bring your best based upon your trade, what it is that you did for work and labor. And when you brought your dedication offering, it was like you were saying to God, all that I have is yours, and therefore I'm going to bring a portion of what I do. And I'm going to bring the best to you as a way of saying, I honor you, I trust you, I love you. So Cain brings some fruit, some of his fruit, and Abel brings his firstborn, a portion of his firstborn. And like I said, God looked upon Abel with favor. Now, Cain's response to God not looking favorably upon him and his offering, I think, can be justifiable. He's angry. His face falls. Now, is this the first time that he's experienced these feelings? And maybe in regards to his brother Abel, is there something going on in the relationship that's causing these things to rise up inside of Cain? Is there some sort of a, a favorable response that Abel gets in life, even from family dynamics? We don't really know because the text doesn't tell us, but it does make me curious. Is this the first time he's experienced this? We can't know for sure because all we have in the story is that within a few verses, the anger turns into something else. And it's interesting to me how that anger then takes on a particular posture, kind of that, that posture of the pounce, how you see things, what you're going after. Something is beginning to crouch inside of Cain's soul. Now, between verses 5 and 8, we don't have a timetable, but we do know that the nature of sin, and in particular, the sin of envy, jealousy, hatred, has a tendency to erode the soil over time. It's a slow process, but given over time, it quickly can erode bits and pieces of our soul and our motivations, and it's very hard to see. But when these things go left unchecked, 
Verse eight reveals where it can lead. These feelings are just everyday, ordinary feelings that all of us experience. We've all experienced these feelings. Now, jumping back to the crouching imagery for a moment, right there in the very center of a grudge, and I want you to get this picture, in the center of that grudge, the text tells us that there's something that's crouching. Do you see that in yourself? Right in the center of that, of that bitterness or that resentment, there's something crouching right in the very center. Now, when we look at the story, we could make some different conclusions. We could come up with some misconceptions from a story like this. Maybe we could say, well, was it actually the form of the offering that was the problem? Or was it the amount that was the problem, right? Because is that how it works in God's economy? If I do this much, then God has to bless me. If I bring this much, then God has to hold up his end of the deal. Because it says that Cain is bringing some fruit. And I think, well, at least he's bringing something, right? He's bringing some offering. He's, he's offering up something, and it may not be his most valuable, but at least he's bringing something. And then Abel is bringing his firstborn uh, portion, the fat portion of the firstborn, which is the most precious. So he's bringing that which is the most valuable and offering it to God. Therefore, it's making him vulnerable, right? There's an innocence in the offering. So Cain is bringing an offering. Yes, so is Abel. But Abel, I think you could say, is giving from a place of gratitude and not obligation. And there's a difference. So he's giving from a, a different place. He's giving from a, a sense of love and appreciation and acknowledgement that all that I have is God's in the first place. And so therefore, I'm responding out of generosity. I'm responding out of gratitude and not obligation. And Cain is giving from a place of obligation. I have to do the least amount expected because this is how it works in God's economy. You have to do something or you don't get something in return. But at least he's bringing something, right? But the question I ask then, what's underneath the giving? And I suspect that underneath Cain's giving is a demandingness. Living with this posture that if I do this, now God owes me something. I've done my part, now you do your part. Is that how the mechanics of God's economy works? Think about how that would then spill over into our human relationships if we understand that that's the economy of how God works in our relationship. You think about the, the story that Jesus told of the two brothers, and I we, we refer to it as the, the story of the prodigal son. I would say it's the story of the prodigal sons. Both sons are lost and need to be found. Both sons need to awake to God's generosity. And so the younger son in the story takes the father's wealth, goes off and squanders the wealth, lives a lascivious lifestyle, comes to his senses, and then returns back home. On the way back home, He's rehearsing his speech, right? He's going to say, how, do I, how am I going to make this right? Um, he's rehearsing that speech of repentance. And before he can even utter a word or get anything out, the father meets him with this lavish generosity, throws his robe on him, celebrates his return, and then wants to throw a party for him, even after he's done what he's done. 
And then the father goes to the elder brother out of excitement and joy and invites the elder brother to come celebrate the return of his brother. His son has come home. And the elder brother responds like this. He says, that son of yours. He can't even say his name. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to say the name of that person that you hold a grudge against or that you hate? That person that you have that jealousy for, that envy, that stuff that just kind of saturates in the soul, you can't even say their name. We say things like, oh, that ex of mine or that kid of yours. Cain and the elder brother in the story of Jesus did this thing where they foster resentment. And resentment, when left unchecked, it never just lies there. It becomes something else. That's the danger of envy and jealousy and hatred and indifference and resentment and bitterness. All those things, they get into the soul and eventually they become something else. And when we allow envy, jealousy, anger to develop in the seedbed of our soul, it never does nothing. Don't you hear that in the text? If you do not do what is right, there's, there's like a warning that's given. Don't you see that in the crouching? Are, are you then taking on the same posture as that of, of the pounce, getting ready to attack? There's this unwillingness that exists inside of all of us, if we're honest, to face those seemingly ordinary monsters that have a life to their own, that live within. Things like envy, jealousy, anger, hatred. Like, let's not, let's not get overreactive and let's not make a big deal about those things. But the, but the Bible, the beauty of the Bible is that it refuses to not take those things seriously. In the Bible, it's like there's no denial. It's like, no, we have to, we have to go after these things. We have to get to the root and to the heart of these things. I want to ask us some re reflective questions for a moment. And I want us to think about friendship. Do you have friends in your life who tell you the truth? And when I say friends, what I mean by that is people who are, they're relentless in their pursuit to see you become the person that they know you are. They are absolutely like ruthless and relentless to go after your heart. And if there is anything they see in you that's hurting you, that's hurting, like that's operating your life, that's hurting other people, that's hurting relationships, they're like, they're going to name that. They're going to go after that. They're going to call that stuff out and help you see what you can't see. Those are the kinds of people we need in our lives. Those are friends because there's certain things we just can't see. We can't. And so we need people to help us see the things we can't see. We don't need people in our lives who just affirm us all the time, even though we need the affirmation and the encouragement, but we don't need people to just come alongside of us and say, yeah, oh no, it's not fair. No, you're right. You're precious. You're, you're amazing. Just all of that, but never really calling us on our part in the story, the stuff that we're contributing. Like maybe there's areas where we need to grow. And please hear this, that these little seeds of envy and hatred and and anger and jealousy and indifference, they will never just do nothing. They grow. And we cannot go after those things alone. It's not like 
you must rule over this on your own. No, you need other people in your life to help you see the things you can't see. Like I've learned over my lifetime that I'm not overly concerned. I'm concerned, but not overly concerned about the sins that I'm aware of because at least I'm aware of them. It's the ones that I'm not aware of that actually terrify me. Those are the ones that I'm like, when are, when are those things gonna come up inside of me and do I have the courage to face them and do I have friends in my life that will actually help name and identify those things when they see them? Remember, these things that we're talking about, indifference, hatred, envy, all that stuff, those things have a life to their own and they desire to have you. Now, this is what the text is telling us in verse seven. They desire to have you. Think about that. And, and I've, been, I've been thinking about this for years and years. I think that when you sin, you make a conscious choice, like I'm gonna do this thing and you actually act on it, and you give yourself over to it, you actually create something. It's like something wakes up inside of you and comes alive and something is created. And that thing, that entity, that, that thing wants to have you. It wants to control you and demands that you get your way and then leads you to have, to control, to demand. It leads you into a deep sense of entitlement. Like, do you see that operating in your own life? Don't you hear that in some of the things that you say if you're paying attention? Don't you recognize that in some of your reactions? It's like, how come he, and why does she, and what about him, and what about her, and not me? It's not fair. And then it quickly becomes about all the things that we're not getting, or the things that are being taken away from us, when the reality is, is that God's, in God's economy, there's always enough, always. Even when those things are being eliminated, or our perceptions of like, well, I'm just losing all of that. There's always enough in God. God is enough. And we say that, but is God really enough? Are we, every, everything that we need, does it exist in God, in Christ, in God's economy? You think about it. When you give yourself over to hatred, are you then done with it? Is it like, or is it done with you? just because maybe you, you've identified it and you see it. But once you continue down that road, is it now all of a sudden, yeah, I've got control over that? Or does that thing still live and breathe and have its own desire? Is it coming after you? Is it just the beginning of something that's been created? And that's, that's worth exploring. That's worth looking into. Because like if you take jealousy, for example, when you give into jealousy and jealousy breaks into a relationship, it can quickly squelter joy, trust, love, connection, intimacy, all the things that make for a healthy relationship. And it, and it isn't like you just kick it over one day. It's like you just take it apart brick by brick. All the things that are making the relationship flourish, you're pulling it apart. And here's something really important for us to look at. These little ordinary grudges, pieces of envy, hatred, jealousy, those things that we're helping to create and that might be flourishing in our lives, those things, those things will just never go away. They're always 
there. And according to the text, those things desire to have you. But you must rule over it. But they desire to have you. It's, it's like a constant fight, isn't it? And keep in mind, when those things go left unchecked, it's like ignoring the, the engine light that keeps blinking on your car dashboard. You ignore that long enough, you have problems in the very near future. But those things, when they go left unchecked, you think about not just on an individual level, but how they affect us at a communal level. When a community of Jesus followers do not keep those things in check, they will quickly diminish and squelter the community of Jesus from being this light, flourishing community where there's a connection and a oneness and we're moving in a direction together. Like we have decided here that we want to be light in the world. That is our vision. And we've all agreed. We've said that is the vision. That is what we sense God is calling us into as we move into the future together. Now, do you, do you think that the enemy is going to sit idly by and allow us to be light in the world? Or do you think the enemy is going to crouch in the hallways and start to whisper into our ears, how dare that person take that from you? You deserve that. They don't have your best interest in mind. Those people over there are against you. Don't you see that stuff lurking in the hallways and in the shadows, ready to pounce, insisting that we get our way, pulling us apart, separating us into little groups over here where the fragments of our community starts to break and shatter and we're not connecting? And this is why I think God comes to Cain and comes to humanity and says, you must master it. It's like, it's not even an option. You must. I'm telling you, Cain, if you don't master this thing, it will master you. Cain, your enemy is not your brother. Don't blame him. Don't use him as the scapegoat. Stop playing the victim card here. And notice God's reaction and response to Cain after he commits this heinous act. He comes searching and asking questions, just like we saw last week in God's response to Adam and Eve when they made a conscious decision to move out on their own and step away from the created order of life and into the chaos. God comes in searching and pursuing. He's, it's like God always makes the first move. And he comes to Cain pursuing, and he asks him a couple of really important questions that I think are being asked of us as humanity too. And the first question that he asks him is, Cain, where's your brother? What is God looking for here? He's not looking for information because he already knows what happened, but what is he after? I think what God is after and what he's always after is our hearts. And he's, and he's after repentance and confession. And that's really important. Those two pieces of confession and repentance, no denial, no downplaying, no, no denial of, of the part that we participated in. It's like, I want you to own that part of it. And I'm not going to shove your face into it because I want healing. And Cain's response is really startling. And his response to God's question is, am I my brother's keeper? Don't you hear this same pattern in the elder brother in the story of the prodigal sons, where he says, that son of yours? Don't you see the same pattern in Joseph's story later on in the story that uh, Joseph has brothers and these brothers give in to 
hatred and jealousy and envy and indifference and they end up leaving their brother for dead. They just get rid of him because it's like, just, just get rid of the problem. Just get him out of here. Am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. And then God asks another question, a really important question is, what have you done? The blood, the blood of your brother is crying out from the ground. And the imagery here is so striking, crying out for vengeance, for justice, you see, in the story of the prodigal sons, the elder brother refuses to come to the celebration, whereas the father seeks to restore both sons because both sons are lost. And then the story is left open-ended and it like invites us to step into the story. Which brother are you? Where do you identify? Do you want to come to the celebration? Or are you going to stay in your self-pity? Are you going to stay and hold on to your resentment? Joseph was left for dead. This, this son of yours, he's dead. And then he gets sold into slavery and quickly rises to a place of rule and authority over Egypt. And his brothers come to him and they don't recognize him at first, but then he recognizes them. And so he has authority to shame them, to extract a vengeance upon his brothers, to seek justice for what they did to him. But instead, what does he do? He forgives them. And there's a restorative justice that happens in the story. And, and the reality is, friends, is that we always have a choice. We can play the victim card, we can blame shift, or we can choose how we're going to respond. That's always left. We can always respond. We can always make a choice of how we respond. And if you notice in the story, Abel's blood is crying out for vengeance. And what God wants is not vengeance. God wants, he wants justice. And so he, place, he places a mark on Cain, no one will kill you because I don't want any more violence because violence and grudges and hatred and rage and jealousy, it just, it just begets more of the same. And we get into this endless cycle of inflicting more and more destruction on the earth. But listen to what is said in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, a better word? Like, what is that? What are they talking about here in Hebrews? When Jesus was dying on the cross, he's an innocent victim. He's done nothing wrong. He's the scapegoat. All that hatred, rage, violence is placed on Christ, the scapegoat. And what Christ, and what does Christ say as he's experiencing all of that? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The innocent victim speaks a better word. Does God want justice? Absolutely, no question, but he wants a higher justice. And ironically, the mercy of Christ is the means by which a deeper and higher justice is served. Not the justice of violent retribution, but rather restorative justice, which brings to life, brings back to life. It's the sprinkled blood of radical forgiveness and reconciliation. Christ is, has been uh, described as the last Adam, the final Adam. Christ is now somehow reconciling Cain back to his real father, the final Adam. Isn't that a beautiful picture of justice and restoration? The, the blood of Christ speaks a better word. The death of Jesus is the end of violence. No more. This is a better way. The better word is a restorative word. 
The mark placed on Cain is like the mark placed on the world. It's that it's the cross. And the cross is a symbol. The way of, of violence does not have the final word over humanity. It's a reminder that every time we look at the cross, we remember that the way of Jesus is the way of love and forgiveness. And we are to put this on. It's also a call for us to actively stand with innocent victims, to see and acknowledge all the ways that we have been complicit in the violence and suffering of others. Jesus on the cross, an innocent victim. We see how we have collectively scapegoated the innocent. So the question is, is how then shall we respond? And I want to invite us into a time of confession. And in this time of confession, this posture is, the questions rise up for us. Do we keep scapegoating? Do we keep blame shifting? Do we continue to ignore the question of humanity crying out to all of us, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my sister's keeper? Do we continue to villainize our perceived enemies or do we choose to put on the way of Jesus? Jesus, have mercy on us. Forgive us of our sins of complicit behavior and silence, ignoring the ways that the innocent continue to be oppressed and pushed out into the margins. We confess and we repent and we return to the way of Jesus to see what's really going on in the world to understand God that you yourself placed yourself in the place of the victim. You took on all of the violence and the hatred and the murder and the rage. You became the scapegoat. So the question holds for us, how then shall we respond? And in our confession and our repentance, we choose to love our enemies. We choose to seek restorative justice that causes life to flourish, to bring back to life, to put away jealousy, anger, fits of rage, malice, envy, to no longer gain any ground in our lives, in our community, in our cities, and in our world, because we want to be light in the world. And so we choose to get rid of it. And instead, we put on love. We confess we repent and we put on love, the way of Jesus. Let's continue to be light in the world, friends. Let's seek the way of Jesus in the world. And may the grace and peace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be with all of you. Amen.